You know, when the Japanese surrendered at the end of World War II, they signed a uh, document of surrender which outlined specifically what had to happen as a result of their uh, surrender, and the terms of that had been agreed to by the Allies in what's commonly referred to as the Potsdam, Potsdam Declaration, a series of things that the Japanese had to adhere to as a part of their full and complete unconditional surrender to the Allies. A couple of things they had to agree to, some of which you probably know about, just three big ones. Number one, they were limited to the geographic territories that they could occupy. There was a very a, a specific list of islands that uh, Japan could occupy uh, as a sovereign nation, and they could not occupy any others. So here's where you get to be, no, others, no other places. You don't get to expand, you don't get to do any of that. It, this, this is where you get to be. Uh, secondly, their governance had to remove all obstacles to free democracy in Japan, uh, that the people of Japan might enjoy uh, many of the rights that you and I take for granted, such as freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, and the freedom of the press. And so the governance of Japan had to be changed and remove all obstacles to free democracy in Japan. The final uh, item, probably the most significant, is uh, when the military returned from the war, the soldiers could return, but only disarmed. They had to completely disarm their military. They had to disarm as a terms of their surrender. And, and the documents made clear, your, your general military personnel will be able to return to their homes and return to a peaceful life. However, we will prosecute any war crimes to the full extent uh, of international uh, law. And Japan had to obey these terms. This is uh, what's known as a, a treaty of some sorts, where the greater nation imposes uh, on the lesser nation uh, requirements for ongoing peace, and if the treaty is violated, there are swift and strict repercussions. Let me quote uh, then-President Truman. I don't want you to mistakenly think he's still president. This is what he had to say if they violated or failed to agree to the terms of this treaty, Japan can expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on earth. Dude, simmer down. <laughs> but he was right, wasn't he? He said, Japan, you can expect a reign of ruin, the like of which has never been seen on earth. This is a treaty. He says, violate this treaty, Japan, and... and Hell will visit your doorstep, and it, uh, curses will be upon you uh, and the violation of this uh, covenant, this treaty. We are familiar with these kinds of treaties all the time. As children, we learn about them. Clean your room or you will get a timeout. Uh, we didn't get timeouts when I was a kid, but that's... <laughs> Clean your room or else... We see them all over the Bible. The Mosaic Law, the Sinai Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant was one of these kinds of treaties. Here is the law by which you will know and worship God. If you follow it, you will have peace and you will have prosperity and you will have longevity in the land and your fields will be fruitful and your wombs will be fruitful. If you violate this treaty, this covenant, this Mosaic Law, you will be cursed. The land will be cursed. Your wombs will be cursed. You will be pulled off of the land. This is this kind of treaty where the greater uh, power says to the lesser power, obey me or else. That's what the Mosaic 
law is. But you know, this isn't the only kind of covenant that was common during the time of Israel before Christ, a thousand to fifteen hundred years before Christ. There was another kind of treaty, and it's called a suzerain treaty. Not Susan, suzerain, S-U-Z-R-A-I-N, if you like to spell things. A, a word we would use for suzerain treaty would be a, the word grant, a gift. This is where the greater power comes to the lesser power who sa and says, you know what, I like you. I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff. And instead of the treaty being based on curses to the lesser, it's based on curses to the greater. The greater power comes to the lesser power and says, I will bless you in the following ways. And if I fail to do so, may curses be on me. This is a very common treaty during uh, the time. A, a, a king might do this for a general he appreciates. A king might go to a general and say, you will have estates and land and wives and children, and if I fail to provide for these, you will sit on my throne instead of me. And these are also common in the Old Testament. God made one of these kind of covenants to Abraham. Remember what God promised to Abraham? You will be fruitful. You will have children that will be as numerous as what? The sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. And when God made a covenant with Abraham, he sealed it with a, a ritual. He took animals and laid them out. And he told Abraham, cut them in half. And normally you would cut them in half lengthwise, which is harder to do. And lay the halves out. And I will pass, God says, I will pass through the animals. And what is he saying when passing through those animals? He is saying, may it be to me if I do not honor my covenant to you, Abraham. Can you believe God would make a covenant like this? May I be like these animals, passing through them if I do not honor my covenant. So this is a, a grant that God is making to Abraham. Other ways this was done in that culture, the Hittites, they were kind of brutal. What they would do is take a lamb and cut off one of its legs and shove the leg down the lamb's throat, dead, obviously. And the, the greater king would say, do this to me if I don't honor my promise. That's pretty serious. And this is what God is saying to Abraham in a, in a grant to Abraham. May I be cut in half if I don't honor my covenant to you. One author and a pastor in Portland, Michael Lawrence, says this in his book. He regards the covenants. He helps us uh, to think about God in this way. One of the most significant ways, Pastor Lawrence says, that we know God is through what? His promises. One of the best ways we can know what God is like and what He is up to is through the kinds of promises He makes. If you want to know what God is like, look at His promises or what we often call covenants. We're going to use the word promise today because I think it's a little more familiar. So here's the title of the message today, and I'm going to give away the answer. It's a very complicated and deeply theological promise, uh, title. I'm being facetious. Sarcasm sign is illuminating. God's promises are best. God's promises are best. And we're going to look at one of the most important promises God makes, the Davidic, the promise to David, and understand how his promises are best. But first, before we get to that, we have to look at a little bit what's going on. So look with me at 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 3. And under uh, this sort of a way of understanding these few past verses, this is David's misunderstanding. David has a misunderstanding about what God is up to 
excuse me, and what God's promises are like. I'm going to read these three verses very quickly and bring us up to speed. After the king, this is 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, after the king, that is David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So David now has been established in his kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, he even has a palace that has been built. It's a palace where the the stone walls are lined with cedar, a significant and powerful luxury for the king. This is the culmination of the story of David's success. For years and years and years and years, David had toiled in hardship and difficulty, running for his life from King Saul and, and uh, uh, battling the Philistines and fighting and warring, and now there's peace, and he lives in the expansive palace of his kingdom. And what we have to understand about the story of King David's success, the story of King David's success is a story not of David's skill or competency. The story of David's success is a story of God's grace and God's provision. So look at what David says. He says, listen, here I am in a house of cedar. I'm living in luxury. And where is God's house? Where is God's presence? The presence of God for the people of Israel was the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant it was still being housed in the tabernacle, the tent. And David said, this isn't right. I'm living in this beautiful home. And the Ark of the Covenant is living in a tent that is getting a little tattered. It's been hauled all over the wilderness for all those years, and now finally it's here in Jerusalem. Uh, This doesn't seem right. I'm in a house of cedar. God's uh, presence is in a tent. God deserves better than that. This is David's thinking. God deserves better than that. God is is owed something because of the favor He has shown on my life. God has blessed me and He has given me success. And so, uh, you know, I think I owe I think I owe God something here. And and I'm going to look at God's response to David. And these we know these things were in David's hearts because this is what. God responds to when he speaks to David. So David says, I have this huge house. I owe God something for his blessing. In fact, look at God's house. I think God needs a better house. God is, in fact, in need here. I mean, he lives in a tent. This doesn't seem right. So, so David is making some assumptions here about his own life and about the work of God in his life that are really, really important. First of all, he's making an assumption about why God chose him. Why did God choose David? Well, David is making an assumption here. He says, you know what? Certainly I didn't deserve all of God's favor, but there must have been a little something he saw in me, a little spark of potential. You know what I could do with a guy like David? I could could take him from his humble beginnings into a glorious kingdom because I see something in David, just ever so slight, just a spark of what could be. So David, in his heart, maybe is nursing here a thought of of God chose me. Now, certainly I didn't deserve what he did. He did 99.9% of the work, but I did a little bit. He saw something in me that was, was special. 
I must have deserved it at least a little bit. And since, since God has done so much through me, I need, to, I need to do God a favor. I need to hook him up with a real nice house. I mean, at least as nice, at least as nice as my house. Maybe David was even thinking, you know, I just want to keep things square between God and I. He's done a lot for me, so I want to do a lot for God. He has blessed me, so I want to bless him. Uh, We need to keep things straight between us. It's a terrible misunderstanding of David. He has has, uh, made a terrible blunder in his calculation. By God's grace, he uh, is going to address it with all kinds of kindness to him. But this is terribly dangerous. I call it this, this, and I referred to it just for a second last week, but I'm going to review it again today just for a second. I'm going to say it this way. This is the danger of Christian karma. You know what karma is? Remember what karma is? If I do good stuff, the universe somehow will give good stuff to me. If I buy coffee for the guy behind me at Starbucks... The universe will shudder with enjoyment that I have paid for coffee for somebody who can afford coffee. How do I know they can afford coffee? They're in line behind me. They didn't go up in line and say, oh, Lord, may you provide for coffee today. I mean, maybe they did. I would be surprised at that. So I have the universe is somehow going to reward one rich person buying coffee for another rich person. Somehow this is karma. Okay, I'm off topic. Now, karma is the same way. It's bad, right? If I do bad things, the universe is at some point going to line up the, the rules or something, and all of a sudden, something bad's going to happen to me, and that, you know, and then we're, we're all. And now, Christians, we practice this all the time. If I am good, what is God going to do? He's going to bless my socks off. And if I am bad, what's God going to do? Oh, we don't even want to talk about it. He's going to be gracious, right? That's how we usually do it. Oh, God is a God of grace. So this is a danger when we say, I can, uh, God is going to bless me because I have done something to curry favor from God, and then when I do something bad, God is going to smack me upside the head, give me a time out. It's dangerous thinking. It's terribly unbiblical. It has nothing to do with what we see in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. There's, it's nowhere in there. If I am blessed, think of it this way. Are you, are you walking with me here? I know it's a little warm. Why is it warm? Because we have a baptistry full of hot water. The humidity in here is about 97%, okay? So we're on the same boat. If I am blessed because I am good, guess what? It's not because God is good. If I am blessed because I am good, then therefore I'm not being blessed because God is good. If I have to be good for Him to do something good for me, He's not good. He's just a business associate. And this is David's misunderstanding. I have received blessing from God, so I need to square things up. I need to tip the hat to God. And God is going to make quite clear here in just a moment, that's not how my promises work. This is a terrible misunderstanding. It's to think that to gain God's blessing, I need to curry favor with God or to avoid God's uh, harsh reaction, I need to somehow uh, keep my nose clean. It says a misunderstanding by David, and God is going to make clear what his promises are like in verses 4 through 17. So look with me at God's promise in verses 4 through 17 of 2 Samuel 7. 
That night, God came to the prophet Nathan. He said, I want, to re- want you to relay a message to my servant, David. We didn't read this part, so it's worth reading. Verse 5 of 2 Samuel 7. Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Now, when God asks you a question like that, you go, uh-oh, I missed the boat here. I, so it's you. I just want to make sure you had a conference somewhere. I don't remember that meeting God is saying. So you're the one to build it. Okay. Here's what God says. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up from Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's promise begins this way. We have to understand God right away says, listen, David, my promises to you and my work in your life and the blessings I have given you and what I have taken you through are based on different things than your assumptions. I'm I'm operating on a different set of criteria, David, than you are. First thing you need to understand, David, I don't need a house. I've never had a house. From the day that Israel came out of Egypt all the way through the wanderings, I never needed a house. I never once asked Moses or Aaron or any of the elders or Joshua or Caleb or anyone else, you guys, uh, it's kind of cold tonight. Can I get a house? He never once did it. God said, I don't need a house. I'm Uh, You're operating on an assumption that I need what you think I need. I don't, God is saying. I don't need a house like you think I need a house. Secondly, David, let me point something out to you. If you owed me something, what are you going to pay me with? You're going to pay me with my stuff. This is an old joke you've heard a million times before. It's at least reviewing so that we can laugh a little, right? Scientists meets up with God at a meeting, and the scientist says, hey, God, guess what? We've figured out how to create life spontaneously. And God says, hey, wow, that's, that's pretty cool, because up, up to now, I'm the only one who's been able to do that. So let's see it. And so the scientist reaches down, picks up a big ducket, bucket of dirt, and sits it on the table, and God says, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. Get your own dirt. God is saying to David, you're going to build me a house out of what? Out of my stuff. You're going to take my stuff and make it into a house and say you gave me something? That doesn't make any sense, David. I don't need a house, first of all. If you owed me something, I already own everything you might presume to owe me. So how, in fact, are you going to repay me? And the last thing God wants to make clear, he says, listen, David, I called you out of the pasture. Do you remember that? Of course you remember that. David, I didn't call you out of the pasture because I saw a spark of potential in you. I called you out of the pasture because you were the least likely, least qualified, most unexpected, bottom of the list. No one would have ever taken you, David. You didn't qualify a little. You qualified not at all. I don't need a house. If you owed me something, I already own it. And David, you weren't qualified even to begin with. Finally, he says, all of your success, all of your victories, all of your glory has been because why? I have been with you. What was David's contribution to his success? Attendance. He showed up 
and trusted the Lord. David's contribution was zero. The place where David found himself in a, a cedar-paneled home was 100% completely and totally the work of God himself because he's just that kind of God. And he had a purpose that he was doing. So in the midst of all of this, David has uh, understood now that God is up to something completely different than, than maybe God was up to. God's promise is completely based on God's motivation. God's promise is completely based on God's plan. And it's not based on David in the slightest. And as a result, God, in fact, expands his promise to David. And we read this, so I won't read it. But here's at least six things God promises to David. Are you ready? First of all, he says, David, I will make your name great. You will be like the great people of the earth. Your name will be great. It will be known. You will be famous. People will hear your name and revere you. This has been true for David for the last... 3,500 years. Secondly, God says, I will provide for you peace for Israel. You will have rest on every side from your enemies. Thirdly, he says to David, I will establish your house, your dynasty. This is really important what God does here. David comes to God, and what does God say, what do you say to God? I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And it's better than the one you were dreaming up. God here is making himself known through his promise. He's saying, you can't out-promise me. You can't out-generous me. I'm going to establish your house. And then finally, he says, I will uh, have your son build a place for your people to worship me, a temple. Your son will do it. Your son will build a place of worship, a temple, a house for me. And he goes on and describes even more about this son. He says, your son's throne will last forever. How long? Forever. His throne will never end. Your son's throne will never end. And in fact, God even goes further and says this, your son, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is God's promise to David. It's based on different things than David's assumptions. It's based not on David at all. It's based on how awesome God is. The nature and purpose of God's promise, it's unmerited, it's unconditional, and it's generous, reveals what God is like. The nature, of the purpose, the nature and purpose of God's promise makes known to us what God is like. So you would look at this promise to David, and the question you are supposed to ask when you read 2 Samuel 7 is, what kind of God is this? What kind of God acts like this? I mean, think about all the gods you might know. We discover from David in verse 22, there are no other gods, but people have been making up gods forever. That, let's get, for example, the Canaanite gods. They had a whole boatload of gods that they worshipped, they required all kinds of things to keep them from nuking the people. You had to offer all kinds of sacrifices. You had to, uh, Molech required child sacrifice in certain occasions. You were constantly working to either wake the God up from slumber or get the God to not kill you. 
I mean, look at the history of mythological gods, even from Greek and Roman times. They're always flying off the handle, and handle, uh, getting angry and upset, and people are scrambling to try and appease them. And if they're not doing that, they're involved in some kind of immoral and untoward behavior. And we get this in our mind, what God is like based on these very strange things. How do we appease the God? We throw the young virgin in the volcano. There's some notion of that in every kind of religious system. We just don't have a virgin or a volcano, so we do something else. All gods throughout history, to some degree, have to be appeased. Read 2 Samuel 7. Do you find a God who needs to be appeased? This is not a God who needs to be appeased. This is a God who, uh, because of David and God's intentional purpose that were only his own, he offers unmerited, unconditional, and overly generous promise to David. Is God really like this? Are God's promises really like this? Because if his promises are like this, this, this is, God is really good if he's like this. Well, I think he is. Look at David's response. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 18, and actually going through the end of chapter 8. David's response. If you like outlines, I've had three points. David's misunderstanding, God's promise, and now David's response. King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as, as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for, for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. Let's stop there just for a minute. David's response is a, a response of prayer and worship and praise. And he says, God, what are you up to? How could you possibly do this for, for a mere man? I, I'm, I'm nothing. If David had any pretense beforehand that he brought something to the table for God, it's gone now, isn't it? God, you would do all of this for me, a mere man? Look with me at verse 20, 2 Samuel 7. What more can I say to you? For you... Know your servant. Whenever God blesses us, this is a response. I think that is helpful. See, this is where David suddenly realized this notion of Christian karma falls apart. God has blessed his socks off. I don't know if he wore socks. God has blessed his sandals off. And he looked into his own heart. And you would think he would be maybe and say, well, I must be pretty good if God is blessing me. He looked into his own heart, and what did he see? He didn't see good. He says, you know me, God. You know the motivations of my heart. What hasn't happened yet? Two significant events are still coming in David's life. Number one, Bathsheba. That's still coming. Do you think God was caught off guard by Bathsheba? Gee, I never would have done 2 Samuel 7 if this was going to happen. Man, what do I do now? Well, I'm stuck. Unconditional promise. God knew all about it. 
And David affirms, God, you know what's going on in my heart. David hadn't yet had an affair with Bathsheba, but do you think uh, lust and adultery was a, a novel case for David just in one moment? But for the rest of his life, he was pure as a wind-driven snow. Now, David knew what was in his heart that would one day come out. David also wasn't terribly trusting. Later on, he's going to take a census of the people of Israel because he, he got tired of having to trust God for everything. I want to make sure that I've got a lot, plenty of military. And that's even worse in many ways. 75,000 people in Israel died because of his decision that day. That's in his heart. And David is saying, God, what are you, how could you possibly do this for me? You know what's going on in, my, in me. It's unbelievable. Verse 22 and 23, he says this, God, how great you are. There's no one like you. Who was like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, to make a name for himself? David is, is seeing now that God's work is about glorifying himself, to redeem people to himself because that brings the greatest glory to God. And he's doing so through the people of Israel. The blessing for David here is to glorify God's name and establish a redeemed people. It's not to make David comfy. David is having a better understanding here of what God is up to. Then look at this final worshipful response of David in verse 25, and this is a very strange response. Verse 25, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made. Isn't that interesting? God makes this fantastic promise to him, and what does David say? God, you better keep your promise. Keep your promise, God. can't find the other verse I wanted to read. Keep your, he, he prays uh, that God would, would keep his promise because, in fact, he even says, I just wish I could find it. It's later on. If you find it, you can yell out the, the verse. But he says, God, because of your promise, I have courage to pray this way. I, am, I have courage to pray and say, God, keep your promise because of the nature of your promise. If you find the verse, you get a free coffee card. 27, free coffee card. Everybody gets a coffee card. I feel like Oprah. <laughs> that's terrible. And here's the thing. That, that's all you're going to remember now. Your servant has found courage to pray this prayer. God, keep your promise. How would we normally pray after receiving a great blessing when God shows up and gives you everything you ever wanted? and more. What would we pray? And God, God, help me to live up to what you've done here. God, help me to, help me to honor what you've done here. Wouldn't we pray that? There's a movie that came out a few years ago called Saving Private Ryan. Look, two World War II references, one sermon. Um, I don't know if you know the story of the movie, but a, a, a widow has four sons, three of which have died in the war, and a, a battalion or a, a group of men are dispatched to save private, the last remaining Ryan from death in World War II. And so this group, led by the actor Tom Hanks, uh, are set to go and save this final son of this woman from dying. And they go through all kinds of ordeals, including a D-Day to get there. Or no, they come after that, but you know what I mean. 
At the end of the movie, the character played by Tom Hanks is wounded mortally. Do you remember that? He's leaning up against a brick wall, sitting there, breathing his last agonizing breaths. And uh, Private Ryan, played by uh, some other actor, is leaning there. And what does, what does Tom Hanks' character say to him? Do you remember what he says right at the end? Earn this. And then it switches to the scene of Private Ryan as an old man in Arlington National Cemetery huddled over Tom Hanks' gravestone weeping, hoping that maybe, maybe I've led a life that is deserving of all these men's sacrifice. That's the default setting of our mind. God makes a fantastic promise to us, and our default setting is to say, okay, I've got, got to earn this, right? David does not pray that he would earn this. He prays boldly because now he realizes where the strength of God's promises come. It does not come from our ability to earn it back. It comes from God's ability to do what? Keep his promise. So David does not pray, God, make me live a life worthy of your blessing. He says, God, please keep your promise because I am going to blow it so bad you will not even believe it. And God says, oh, I believe it. God, keep your promise. God, may your promise rest only on your faithfulness and not on my ability to earn it. This is David's most vulnerable time in this entire passage. David is saying this, God, I figured out now what kind of God you are. You're the awesome God. You're the kind that makes promises that should not have been made, and you keep them because you are that awesome. I know what kind of God you are, so I will trust you to maintain your promise, and God does just that. We're not going to go into detail, but in 2 Samuel 8, we get a summary of all of David's conquests uh, uh, before, during, and after this time. And, and the way the author uh, writes 2 Samuel 8, he starts with kingdoms in the north, and then kingdoms in the south, and then kingdoms in the west and the east, or some order like that. Basically, it's, it's David saying, uh, his military conquest, north, south, east, and west, conquering armies and enemies. And it's, it's David going and saying, God has made a promise, I am going to live on mission in the midst of his covenant. Notice, David didn't uh, receive God's promise, close his doors and go sit on his throne and go, dialed in, God made a promise. God makes a promise and now David is moved into the mission of God to expand the kingdom of God for the people of Israel because he's confident in the promises of God. David doesn't sit around enjoying God's promise. God's promise moves David into the mission of God for the people of God. David's response is worship in word, in recognition of the amazing power of God and in mission, uh, living his life in accordance to the promises of God, not on mission to earn the promises of God. An unconditional promise. By way of summing up, I want to read just a couple of passages in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 18, quotes from 2 Samuel 7, 14. Uh, the apostle is talking to the people of Corinth about some problems they've had in regard to um, cooperating with and engaging in activities that uh, seem to recognize the validity of idol worship. 
And he is calling the people of Corinth to understand their role as the people of God with the indwelling Spirit of God functioning as the temple of God. And he applies 2 Samuel 7, 14 to them. He says, regarding the Corinthian believers, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So the Apostle Paul takes a promise made to David and he applies it to the people of Corinth. He takes the promises up to David and he applies it, in fact, to us. He says this, you are sons and daughters of the king. Why would you worship anyone other than God himself? Similar thing happens over in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to read Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, if you don't mind. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. If you're not sure where Hebrews is, it's toward the end of your Bible. I know it's Hebrews. It should be in the Old Testament, right? No, it's not. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, that is, ancient Israel, through prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, and that's by dying on the cross and being raised, excuse me, raised from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my what? Son. What has the author of Hebrews just done with 2 Samuel 7? Who is the son of David whose throne will never end? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He says, the son who will inhabit the throne of David forever is fulfilled in, finally, the person of Jesus Christ. He came in the line of David. Now you wonder, why are those uh, genealogies at the beginning of Matthew and Luke so important? This is why. Because David sits on, uh, I should say, Jesus is the son that brings the final fulfillment to the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. Solomon fulfilled some of the promises to a partial degree. Samuel did in, did I say Samuel? I meant Solomon, you knew what I meant. Solomon built a temple, certainly. Solomon did inhabit the throne of David, certainly. But did Solomon's throne last forever? No, in fact, upon Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided. How long did that temple last, as beautiful it was? A short period of time. It ends up in most of the valuable things ends up, end up in Babylon and finally destroyed. But Jesus' throne never ends. And Jesus' temple never ends because his temple is now his people by the power of His Spirit. I need you to understand one other thing before we look at uh, one last uh, cross-reference. 
course, you know that's meaningless. Why do we even say it? All Jewish theology before the birth of Christ said 2 Samuel 7 applies to the Messiah. All the, universally, all the rabbis before the birth of Christ said 2 Samuel doesn't apply to Solomon. It doesn't work. The Messiah is going to finally fulfill uh, the promises of God uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7. And so as a result, we get to a sermon in Acts chapter 2 by a guy named Peter. If you were here at FBC Wednesday night, some of this will be review. Feel free to take a nap or write your grocery list as we review. Of course, I'm mostly kidding. Fellow, uh, this is what uh, David, uh, I should say, Peter says in regard to David and his promise in, in verse 25 of Acts chapter 2. David said this about his son who would come from him, the Messiah. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. So David is thanking God that he will not die, right? No. Peter makes that point in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that David died and his tomb is right over there. So this psalm cannot be written about David because this psalm is about somebody who comes back from the dead. Verse 30, he was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne and he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. So David was saying, a Messiah will come who will rise from the dead. And Peter was saying to all of the Israelites and the Jewish people in Jerusalem, saying, remember what David said? That the Messiah will come and will rise from the dead? And as, as good Jewish students visiting synagogue, they would have all said what? Oh well, yeah, yeah, of course. Remember the rabbi teaching me that? The Messiah will come, he will be in the line of David, and he will rise from the dead. So what does Peter say? He just did. Forty days ago, you nailed him to a cross, and he rose from the dead. And what was the response of, it, of the people who were listening? They were cut to the heart. What do we do? Because now everything's come together for them. We killed the Messiah, because we know he fulfilled the, the promises of David, the promises of God to David, and he rose from the dead, and we all know Jesus rose from the dead, we realize now all of a sudden, we killed the Messiah. Since Jesus is raised, Jesus fulfills all of the promises of God in 2 Samuel 7. Since Jesus is raised, all of the generous, undeserved, unmerited promises of 2 Samuel 7 belong to those who are in Christ. We are part of a kingdom that will never end. He will bestow on us blessing we do not deserve. He calls us into his family, even though we don't deserve it. He holds us close as his children, even though he knows what's going on in the recesses of our hearts. God gives us an inheritance in Jesus that will never end. I want to read another verse from 2 Samuel 7. It's verse 22. I'd like you to turn there to read it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. This was David's response. May also be on your verse card. How great you are, sovereign Lord. 
There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. We had no idea you were like this God. We had created a caricature of God in our minds, which does not pass muster with reality. David, along with us, look at the generosity of God to make undeserved, unconditional, generous promises that we can be in his family forever. And he calls us in worship to say, how great are you, O sovereign Lord? This is what you're like? This is amazing. Just look up the prayer a little bit to verse 14. And we're going to close with this. God says this in regard to David, but we know from all of the New Testament writers, from Peter to Acts to the Stephen just before his martyrdom, they all believed, verse 14, applied to Christ as the Messiah. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But Jesus does no wrong, right? Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. Yet we were considered him, uh, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 5, But he was pierced, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we were healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the beginning of our message, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, and God said, I will bless you. I will make your family like the sand on the seashore, and if you do not hold my covenant, may it be done to me as it was to these animals. And what happened? God held his end of the bargain. We did not hold ours. So did God, did God punish us? No, that's not how a, a suzerain grant treaty works. When a, a suzerain grant treaty fails, the, the lower vassal does not receive the punishment. Who receives the punishment? The great king. And so he was. Divided on the cross. Hebrews 10 tells us that we walk through the curtain, which was what? His body divided. Genesis chapter 12 tells us, God says, I will die to keep this covenant in place. And Jesus says, I did die to keep this covenant in place. This is the kind of God we serve. He looks into our heart and says, I know everything that's going on and I will die to keep this covenant in place because I know you can't do it. What kind of God is this that we serve? 
He's the awesome kind who pours out on us unconditional, undeserved, generous blessing. Not because we deserve it, not because we can keep it, but because Jesus is just that awesome. I feel a little bit sheepish because I'm supposed to have a list of things you're supposed to do when you leave church, right? I don't have an application for you today. I've got nothing, absolutely nothing. I do have something I want. I want us in our hearts to go, holy cow, this is what he's like? This is the God we serve? He's not, he's not looking for a chance to knock me off my feet. He's not counting up my good deeds to see if he can put a little blessing in my inbox. Wait, this is what he is like? Can we just for a moment allow the truth of the kinds of promises God makes shatter through the hardness of our hearts that we may say, holy cow, you are amazing. Satan knows if we think God is an ogre, we will not serve him. My prayer is that God might, through the power of his spirit and his word, open our eyes that God is incredible. He is just that good. He is just that amazing.